Welcome to Hematologic Oncology Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. On this program, we discuss two important and not uncommon hematologic cancers, multiple myeloma and follicular lymphoma. And to do this, we first visit two oncology investigators and then two nursing specialists. To begin, Dr. John Leonard comments on indolent NHL within the context of a patient he cared for in his practice. So this is a 63-year-old male with follicular lymphoma, and I think the main question in this patient is how to approach their initial treatment. In follicular lymphoma, obviously watch and wait is an option. Non-chemotherapy-based treatments are an option, and then chemo-based treatments are also an option, things like CHOP. Can you kind of go back through exactly how he presented? Oh, sure. Okay. So this is a 63-year-old male with follicular lymphoma who presented to our clinic, basically was feeling reasonably well except some mild fatigue, and felt a lymph node in his groin. As often happens, one thing led to another, got a biopsy, and was found to have a grade 2 follicular lymphoma. On additional evaluation, the patient had a normal LDH, was found to have other lymph nodes in the three to four centimeters range. Most of his disease was in the pelvis, the inguinal area, but he also had some smaller axillary and thoracic nodes. His bone marrow was involved, and in fact, he was mildly anemic with a hemoglobin of about 12. What was his life situation and his family situation and his work? He is working. He works in sales computer-based business involved in sales. He has a couple of grown children. He's married and really had been feeling relatively well, although, again, the anemia affected him a little bit, was a little bit tired, but really nothing dramatic as far as affecting his day-to-day quality of life. He was working and was active. Now, when you see a patient who's initially diagnosed with follicular lymphoma, what are some of the key factors that you're going to look at and sort of the key treatment strategies you're going to be thinking about? Well, I think the crucial thing is how much is the disease affecting the patient. Patients get diagnosed. They're obviously very concerned, very stressed. They have their family around. They are trying to sort through this diagnosis. They may have gotten on the internet and seen you have follicular lymphoma. It's an incurable thing. So usually everybody is very concerned and there's lots of family around. I think from my perspective, one of the biggest things is education. And that's something that everyone really needs to be providing to the patient. They get their information from various sources, but letting the patient know the range of treatment options, the fact that they don't necessarily need treatment right away, and the fact that they're going to be able to manage the disease and that it's, while it may be an incurable disease, one that they can live a relatively normal life with is very important. So kind of putting the patient at ease with the disease is very important and letting them get comfortable or as comfortable as they can with it takes some time but is a priority. If a patient asked you or maybe this man asked you, you know, is this curable? What's the long-term prognosis? How do you answer? Well, I, you know, for somebody who's 63 years old, I, well, regardless, I generally tell patients, and I guess I've gotten more philosophical with time, that cure really is a relative term and that cure is not necessarily a priority. It'd be nice psychologically to say that we're done with this disease and you can forget about it. But even with the curable lymphomas, you know, things can come back late, although it's uncommon and other things can pop up later. So I generally tell people don't get caught up in the curability or not. 
I typically tell people that indolent lymphomas for many people are like high blood pressure or diabetes that are chronic diseases, but that they may be more familiar with because they themselves or their family members have those diseases and they know that you can live a normal life with them and you hopefully will die with them rather than from them. And so I typically tell patients that I think it's very realistic that they can live a normal life, that they may need treatment for their indolent lymphoma at some point or several points over the next several decades, but that I'm very optimistic that this will be for much of their normal, hopefully, lifespan, kind of a hitchhiker for them rather than something that is having a huge impact on their life. Now, obviously, that's not everybody, but I think for the majority of patients, I think that's quite achievable. What are the factors that you consider in terms of whether you're going to actually treat someone or just observe them? Well, I think that I tend to like to watch patients for a while. Even if I know they need treatment, there are relatively few patients who need treatment right away, the day I meet them or the month I meet them with follicular lymphoma. Obviously, if they're sick and they have cytopenias or bulky disease and are markedly symptomatic, that's one thing. But most follicular lymphoma patients that I see can go through a period of time where we can watch them a while. And I think going back to the points we just covered, being able to give somebody a little bit of time to get used to the idea, to get comfortable with the disease as best they can, and to realize that their preferences are going to drive our treatment approach just as much as my preferences is important. And it can take people a little bit of time to kind of figure out their approach to the disease. Do they want to try to watch and wait? Do they want to be more aggressive? Do they want to take a more toxic treatment for a longer remission? Or do they want to be more minimalist as to how they approach it? So I tend to try to watch and wait people for a couple of months and then reassess them. That gives me time to get to know them them time to get to know the disease and to get to know me. But I think the crucial things are can they wait over that period of time is how symptomatic they are, how bulky their disease is initially. And then when they come back a couple of months later, it's really how much have things changed. Are they comfortable with waiting? And am I comfortable that the disease has kind of been puttering along? Or are we more concerned that it's growing more quickly, the disease has a greater pace than we might have thought, and therefore we need to get started on treatment? Now, how about this man from that point of view? So this man was close to needing treatment kind of right away. He's someone that we were able to watch a little bit, but he ended up getting treatment a couple months later. He was somebody who had some modest symptoms in that he had palpable adenopathy and he was a little fatigued. He wasn't in any extreme situation, but I did encourage him to wait a little while. Again, not expecting that he was someone that was going to go two or three years on watch and wait, but at least giving him a little time and me a little bit of time to get a sense of what his disease was doing, given that when I first met him, we really just had one point in time. And so what happened? So we watched him for three or four months. His disease got a little bit bigger. He was relatively uncomfortable with his lymph nodes. And he's someone that we ended up putting on bendamustine and rituximab. He's getting it right now. He's someone that had enough disease to require treatment. He didn't want to lose his hair. He was working. And I think with the data on the bendamustine rituximab regimen, I didn't see a compelling reason to give him something like our chop 
it's hard to argue that RCVP is better than BR, given that our chop doesn't seem to be better than BR. So it seems to be accomplishing his goals. He's towards the end of treatment, but he's tolerating it reasonably well, and his lymph nodes are shrinking. And so I think at this point, it was a good choice for him. Let's backtrack a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about what bendamustine is, what bendamustine rituximab is, and what we know about how it compares to the other common options, RCHOP and RCVP? So there are numerous different treatment options for patients with follicular lymphoma. Historically, chlorambucil is a pill that has been very active and very well tolerated, and occasionally, particularly in elderly patients, I'll still use it, and it has quite minimal side effects other than tracking the blood counts. That's kind of evolved over time into combination regimens like CVP and CHOP that are outpatient treatments given every three weeks and that many in the audience are familiar with because they've been around for several decades for various types of lymphoma. When rituximab came along, it was first approved in patients with recurrent indolent lymphoma. Then it began to be combined with different chemotherapy regimens like RCVP or RCHOP and then also began to be used as a single agent as part of the initial therapy for follicular lymphoma and other lymphomas in that it was a non-chemotherapy alternative that patients tolerated generally well, although probably not as effective as, say, the combination regimen. So there's not been a lot of evidence going back historically that patients do better with combination regimens versus single agent regimens in follicular lymphoma in the long term But more recently, we have data suggesting that our chemo is better than chemo alone. And that's why we've traditionally used things like RCVP and RCHOP in the more recent years. So bendamustine came along, has been around a long time in Germany. It is a chemotherapy drug, in part largely an alkylating agent, that was initially developed in East Germany going back to the 1960s. It's a very active drug. It was used there for all sorts of lymphomas as well as breast cancer, generally given two days in a row every three to four weeks. And it was studied in the U.S., particularly in recurrent indolent lymphomas as well as CLL. And in the lymphoma front, has been more commonly used now in combination with rituximab. And in the last year or so, there was a large German study that randomly assign people with a variety of lymphoma subtypes, particularly follicular lymphoma, to either RCHOP or R-bendamustine. And the bottom line of that study was that the response rates were high, but the progression-free survival, the time that it takes for the disease to come back, was improved in the group of people that received bendamustine rituximab versus the group of people that received CHOP rituximab. Also importantly, the toxicity with respect to cytopenias, blood count effects, was better with bendamustine, and alopecia was much, much less. And as the audience knows, alopecia is a big deal for patients with all sorts of tumors and otherwise. And so this presented a nice option, bendamustine rituximab, versus some of the other options out there for patients. And so we're seeing it used more as initial treatment as well as in the relapse setting. I've heard people talk about bendamustine rituximab in older patients because, as you say, the toxicity profile is more favorable. But in this case, you had a younger man, 63 years old, where you chose to use that. What was your thinking? Well, I think my thinking in indolent lymphoma patients with slowly progressive disease is 
often, particularly if I've watched a patient for a while, would I give this patient something along the lines of rituximab alone, which was also on my list for this particular individual. Rituximab alone has about an 80% response rate when you give it as an initial therapy for four doses. It is better when you give it as a maintenance treatment, and there are many different maintenance schedules. I think the issue with this particular man is that his lymph nodes were pretty big, and I think that rituximab is a single agent for the amount of disease that he had. It would have been an option, but I think that with the six-centimeter diffuse lymphadenopathy that he had, I was a little less optimistic that that was going to do the job well enough. In somebody like this, I might have been a little more concerned that he would have responded, but you know, in a year, his disease would be back. Now, as you mentioned, another issue is so-called rituximab maintenance, where people get chemotherapy usually with rituximab and then continue with the rituximab often for a couple of years. Can you talk about what we know about that strategy, and is that something you think you're going to offer this man? Well, so rituximab maintenance is the concept that if you get rituximab by itself, usually for four doses, or if you get rituximab with chemotherapy, whether it's RCVP or RCHOP, or R-fludarabine, or now R-bendamustine, do you benefit by giving the patient additional doses of rituximab while they're in remission? And there have been a variety of schedules. I'm sure the audience is familiar with many of them. It's not clear that one is necessarily better than another. One of those schedules has been four doses once a week for four weeks every six months. One schedule has been one dose every two months. One schedule has been one dose every three months. And the bottom line is that those schedules have been looked at either after rituximab as a single agent or after our chemo and suggest that people stay in remission longer in every situation. Again, this is in indolent lymphoma, particularly follicular lymphoma. The role of maintenance treatment is less well established in large cell lymphoma or in mantle cell lymphoma. So the most recent one of these studies was the PRIMA study that was just presented at the ASCO meeting. This was a study that looked at people that largely got RCHOP for follicular lymphoma and randomly assigned those who responded to getting one dose of rituximab every two months for two years. And that study showed that the progression-free survival, meaning how long people were in remission before their disease progressed was improved two years later through the use of the maintenance rituximab treatment. Now, many people have been using maintenance rituximab in practice. I expect that this will be used more commonly because of the fact that, again, people like to stay in remission. Staying in remission is generally a good thing. The caveats to the maintenance treatment have been, what are the side effects? And reassuringly, this study suggested that the side effects were manageable, some minor kind of grade one and two infections, largely the sorts of things that people take outpatient oral antibiotics for, but not severe sepsis and other infections, were slightly increased with the maintenance rituximab. But quality of life was similar in both arms. And so it certainly suggests that for a two-year period, maintenance rituximab has some value. I think the longer-term data will be of interest, but I think we're going to see more and more patients and physicians opting for the maintenance treatment to try to keep people in remission longer. Now, one of the issues with rituximab for a long term is the question of how it affects the body's own ability to respond to infection or your suppressing B cells. What do we know about that and the potential infectious complications that could be seen? So B cells are normal immune cells that help to fight infections, as you mentioned. The B cells turn into what are termed plasma cells, 
Plasma cells are cells that arise in the bone marrow and make antibodies. They make immunoglobulins. Plasma cells are the bad guys in multiple myeloma, and so patients with multiple myeloma have abnormal plasma cells, whereas in lymphoma, in people getting rituximab, rituximab depletes the normal B cells, and so the normal B cells in the blood and in the bone marrow will be diminished. There'll be fewer of them. Now, typically, when we give rituximab over a short period of time, the B cells regenerate themselves, and the plasma cells, which are the daughter cells of the B cells, tend to hang around long enough that there's not really a big problem with infections. I think the issue may be over time that when people have prolonged B cell depletion, when they are getting rituximab long term, they may be more likely to deplete their normal B cells for a longer period of time. They may therefore make less of the normal immunoglobulins and may be more prone to infection. And so the infections that we keep an eye out for, which is not everybody, but in a subset of people who are on prolonged rituximab treatment, are infections that are associated with low immunoglobulins. And those can be sinus and respiratory infections that may be slightly increased in incidence. So it's something to keep an eye out for patients who are getting a lot of rituximab. If you're seeing patients that are getting lots of respiratory and sinus infections, that may be somebody where this may be more of a problem relating to the rituximab and the immunoglobulins. Some of these people in my practice are getting treated with IV immune globulin or IVIG to help to supplement that and to help limit those infections. Could you go through a little bit in terms of how this man actually tolerated the BR and where he is right now? So this man is towards the end of the BR. He tolerated generally well. What we tend to see with bendamustine rituximab, again, hair loss is not an issue. I think in my practice, the biggest thing that we see is nausea. And about a third of my patients have no nausea whatsoever. A third of my patients have mild nausea. And a third, it's more significant to the point that the standard antiemetics don't always cover it and they're more uncomfortable. He was kind of in the middle group where he took standard antiemetics and ate lightly for a day or two around his treatment. He didn't have a big problem with them. But I think nausea from the nursing perspective is something that people should be familiar with and make sure that patients are getting antiemetics and often dexamethasone as part of that package to minimize their chance of nausea. His blood counts have generally been good. He has gotten neutropenic but has had no neutropenic infections. And he's continued to work and been active during this time. Let's talk a little bit about mantle cell lymphoma. You have your 65-year-old woman. Can you discuss her? So this is a 65-year-old woman I saw recently and had a long discussion with. She actually came with her daughter out of town. Mantle cell lymphoma, as the audience knows, is an uncommon form of B-cell lymphoma. The average age or median age is around 65. For whatever reason, it's more common in men. And mantle cell lymphoma tends to present with anemia, with lots of lymphadenopathy, can also include gastrointestinal tract involvement. Historically, patients with mantle cell lymphoma have had a poor prognosis, relatively speaking, with median survivals in the three to five year range. More recent data actually suggest that people are living longer with mantle cell, at least five years under modern treatments. I think one of the challenges with mantle cell is how to define the optimal therapy. There are a range of different treatments stemming from observation in a selected group of patients, and that's something that our group has pursued. And some patients, a minority, but some patients can be observed like they have an indolent lymphoma for a period of time. 
Historically, many people were treated with CHOP, or now CHOP and rituximab, which is a very active regimen as far as getting a response. The problem is that people tend to progress again and have a recurrence within about a year and a half or so. Historically, many of these people have been treated with a more intensive treatment as consolidation, such as high-dose chemotherapy and autologous stem cell transplant. Those data clearly show that if you do an auto-transplant in first remission, that patients with mantle cell lymphoma stay in remission longer. The data have been less compelling, although different investigators have different opinions on this, on overall survival, because many of these studies that have looked at more intensive treatment tend to involve healthier patients, but nonetheless, some people believe that overall survival may also be improved, although in my view, that's less definitively established. And then other groups have used, particularly MD Anderson, the hyper-CVAD regimen, which is, as the audience knows, a more intensive inpatient treatment regimen, involves a more intense CHOP-like regimen, alternating with an ARC methotrexate type of regimen, both cycles involving rituximab treatment. That's a more intensive, more toxic treatment that also has been associated with longer progression-free survivals, although obviously more short-term toxicity with respect to being in the hospital for the patient. And then finally, some have looked at using hyper-CVAD followed by autologous stem cell transplant, and some very good results have been seen there. But there's been generally limited data with respect to randomized trials with the different regimens available in mantle cell lymphoma to show in the long term what is the best treatment with regard to overall survival. And obviously, these different options have different short-term toxicities and are more or less palatable, should I say, for some patients, given their different toxicity profiles. So what happened with this patient? So this patient is a woman, actually lives down in Florida, came to see me and had heard about some of our work in mantle cell. And I think the interesting thing about her was that she's kind of fits smack dab in the middle of the possibilities. Everything that we talked about would have been reasonable for her and that she was a retired woman, but very active, very fit, looked probably 10 years younger than 65. And I think that if she wanted a very aggressive approach, she would be able to tolerate it. And on the other hand, this was a woman who had already done some of her homework before she came to see me and had already been offered a more intensive treatment regimen and was not so enthusiastic, was looking for other options at this time. And I think that she's really on the cusp where everything we talked about would be reasonable. She did have some elevation in her white blood cell count. Interestingly, a subset of patients with mantle cell lymphoma can have a high white count like CLL patients, and there's some evidence that they can do better. There's some evidence that they can do worse. I don't know that it's clearly established. But we went through these various options, and I have to say that after all of the discussion. She really did not want to pursue. She knew the toxicity. She was feeling well, and she really did not want to pursue a more intensive treatment, was on the cusp of watching things just for a little while. But I recommended to her, and interestingly, like our first case, that if she was not going to pursue an aggressive approach, that a bendamustine-containing regimen would be quite reasonable for her as well, because I think compared to an RCHOP type of treatment in mantle cell lymphoma, the data from the study we alluded to suggested that in mantle cell lymphoma, that bendamustine rituximab is a very, very reasonable option, actually had better progression-free survival than RCHOP. And this woman was very active, very socially active, and really did not want to lose her hair. And a CHOP-like treatment, I think that in part was one reason why 
she didn't want one of the more intensive treatments, but in particular, a CHOP-like treatment was something that was really not an option for her unless there was no other choice. So she is going to be started pretty soon on a bendamustine-containing regimen. Now, taking a step back, looking at both follicular lymphoma and mantle cell, and for that matter, the entire field of diffuse large B-cell What are some of the new approaches, new agents that are being looked at right now that you think maybe are going to actually come into practice in the next couple of years? One drug that I think people are familiar with in other contexts is lenalidomide. Lenalidomide being an imid in the same family as thalidomide. The effects of lenalidomide are both direct against tumor cells and in interacting with the immune system and with tumor blood vessels. Lenalidomide is active meaning it shrinks tumors in just about every type of lymphoma, T-cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma, large cell lymphoma. And so it is a drug that commonly main side effect-wise causes cytopenias, low blood counts, but it's a drug that is becoming more and more widely explored in all different types of lymphoma, and I think we're going to see combinations of it with rituximab and combinations with it as a maintenance therapy after chemo are in the near future. So those are a couple of things that I think people are starting to use outside of clinical trials as well as inside of clinical trials that I think in the near term will be getting more and more evaluation and hopefully make an impact in lymphoma. Now, you mentioned that lenalidomide is a so-called IMID. What is that and how do we think it works? So the concept IMID, I-M-I-D, stands for immunomodulatory agent. And the idea is that thalidomide, which people are familiar with both from myeloma and from its prior effects in various settings, and lenalidomide, which is a newer version that's been engineered to do things a little bit differently, although have some of the same activities, as the name implies, modulate the immune system. So it turns on immune cells to interact with the tumor in a little bit different way and can interact with drugs like rituximab in a little bit different way. So part of it is to activate the immune system to fight the tumor cell. Some of it is direct effects where it's actually directly stimulating or inhibiting certain processes in the tumor cell that have a net effect of killing the tumor cell. It also has, we're learning in various tumors, including lymphoma, the concept of the microenvironment, that if a patient has a lymph node or a mass due to lymphoma, that much of that lump is made up by the tumor cells themselves. Much of what's in there is blood vessels and other cells called stromal cells that interact with the tumor cells and kind of keep it going. And lenalidomide interferes with those cells so that the environment, the microenvironment of the tumor is less happy and the cells may be more prone to die off or to get killed by chemotherapy or other things. So the bottom line is that there are lots of ways lenalidomide may work. We're still sorting it out. It may be very different depending on which type of patient or which type of disease like CLL versus follicular lymphoma as an example. Now, you mentioned CLL. Can you talk a little bit about what we know about lenalidomide there? One of the things that I've heard about that sounds kind of interesting slash provocative is so-called tumor lysis syndrome. So lenalidomide is, uh, as I said, an interesting drug. And one of the earlier studies in lymphoma where it was evaluated in patients was in CLL. These were largely first patients with recurrent CLL. And it's now getting to the point where it's starting to be studied in patients as initial treatment. 
One of the interesting things that were found, and I think from the nursing perspective, if you're dealing with calls from patients getting lenalidomide, is that there is something associated with it called a tumor flare, where in fact, temporarily, within a week or two of the patient getting started on the drug, the tumor actually flares, meaning it gets larger and can get kind of inflamed or flared up where the patient has pain, swelling, maybe redness around the site of disease. Sometimes this can be associated with tumor lysis syndrome and blood abnormalities, although this can also be an independent thing. But it can obviously be disturbing to the patient to get started on a new treatment they have enlarged lymph nodes, they get the treatment, and a few days later or a week later, their lymph nodes have kind of gotten bigger and swollen and hard and painful. Why this happens, we don't know. It's presumed to be some kind of effect on the immune system where the immune system is kind of going after the tumor in that area, and as part of it, the tumor gets swollen and red and inflamed. And so I think it's important for nurses in particular to make sure patients know about this, that it could happen. And the way that we generally deal with it is to give corticosteroids of one either prednisone or dexamethasone as part of the treatment for a few days temporarily or to lower the dose of the treatment. So that's something people should keep in mind. Now, as part of your comments, you referred to T-cell lymphoma. And what we've been talking about up to now has been B-cell disease. Can you explain what the difference is and what we know about T-cell lymphoma? Well, of non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, about 90% are B-cell lymphomas, about 10% are T-cell lymphomas. The nomenclature, the classifications of lymphomas in general are complicated, and I'm sure many of the listeners get confused. I certainly, even as a lymphoma specialist, get confused sometimes among the different terminologies, but it gets even more complicated when one gets to some of the subsets of T-cell lymphomas where these are rare or less common tumors, and the names get sort of difficult to wade through. But T-cell lymphomas are about 10% of lymphomas, the concept being that in the immune system you have T-cells, you have B-cells, you have what are called natural killer cells and a variety of other types. And I tell patients that it's almost like the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, all of these different immune cells have different jobs to fight infections normally. The B cells are the cells that make antibodies or immune globulins that are part of the immune system. The T cells are cells that directly attack abnormal cells. They directly themselves attack infected cells or tumor cells in some cases. So if the switches that regulate cell growth get broken in a B cell or its parent, you get a B cell lymphoma. If it happens in a T cell, it's a T cell lymphoma. Generally speaking, what does that mean for the types of T cells, that lymphomas that we have? The two big categories of T cell lymphomas are cutaneous or skin T cell lymphomas. We have a number of different drugs for those. They are largely, again, as the name implies, cutaneous or skin lymphomas, where the big problem for the patient is skin disease and itching and redness and painful lesions of the skin. The other big category of T-cell lymphomas is called peripheral T-cell lymphoma, or PTCL. That is very similar in some ways to large cell lymphoma in large B-cell lymphoma, where these are large cells. These tend to be throughout the body, typically involving the lymph nodes. These are treated with chemotherapy. CHOP types of chemotherapy are more commonly given 
but often these patients are getting treated with more intensive regimens and autologous stem cell transplants. So the two big T-cell lymphoma categories that I think people should know about, both of which we have some new drugs available in, are the cutaneous or skin T-cell lymphomas and then the peripheral T-cell lymphomas, which are aggressive systemic lymphomas. And I guess there's been a sort of a lot of inertia in the T-cell lymphomas, but recently there's been some new agents that have come out that look promising, in fact, have been approved for use. Can you talk about them? Sure. So there are a number of drugs. I think one of the challenges with these diseases are that, A, these are uncommon diseases, again, 10% of lymphomas. And so it's been difficult in some ways to develop new agents because doing things like randomized trials and getting enough patients at a center to do a big study in T-cell lymphoma can be challenging because these are less common diseases. So in the cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, there are a variety of drugs, things like methotrexate, some of the standard chemotherapies, electron beam radiation, a number of other topical treatments are commonly used. We also have drugs like the retinoid compounds, Targretin being one of those. We also have a drug called Ontac, which is an immunotoxin that's been around for a while. I think the excitement in the cutaneous T-cell lymphomas have been the drugs that are called HDAC inhibitors or histone deacetylase inhibitors. The idea behind that is that the histones are proteins that are involved with DNA, and by these drugs that are called histone deacetylase inhibitors, they affect the coiling and uncoiling of DNA, turning on and off genes in the cell. And by using these drugs that are called HDAC inhibitors, you affect the balance of genes in the cell that makes the cell more likely to die or be sensitive to treatment. So one of these drugs called Verinostat has been approved for the cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. And another one of these drugs called Romadepsin is an intravenous HDAC inhibitor also approved for cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. Verinostat is an oral drug. Romadepsin is an IV drug approved within the last year or so. These are drugs that can get responses in these cutaneous T-cell lymphomas roughly 30 to 40% of the time. People can feel fatigue as side effects. The romadepsin, which is the newer drug, is an IV drug. There is some nausea and fatigue and some low blood counts as part of it, but these can be effective treatments. Another drug that I think is also worth mentioning because it's a new drug is a drug called pralatrexate. This has been approved for the peripheral T-cell lymphoma, the aggressive systemic T-cell lymphomas. Pralatrexate is a drug that's a cousin of methotrexate. It has some important differences. It's also an IV drug that gets responses in about a third of patients with recurrent peripheral T-cell lymphoma. So again, these are the aggressive systemic lymphomas. Pralatrexate is a drug that can cause mucositis and low blood counts, and it's important that patients get supplementation with B12 when they're getting this medication as well, B12 and folate, and so that's something to keep in mind if you're treating these patients to be familiar with the supportive care that these patients need. That helps to minimize the mucositis that patients can get. So despite the fact that the T-cell lymphomas are uncommon, we are making some progress, and they can be challenging to treat. It's nice to know that we have a few new drugs available to pull out for those patients when we see them. Let's chat a little bit about your 82-year-old man with diffuse large B cell. We get a lot of questions from oncologists and oncology nurses about the octogenarians. There are a lot of them in oncology practice. And I'm curious, this man with a potentially curable disease, but yet 82 years old, how you approached him? 
It's a real conundrum because you see these patients that are in their 80s with a large cell lymphoma. They often obviously have other medical problems, including cardiac disease, renal disease, other things. And, you know, the question is, you have a large cell lymphoma, you think of it as a curable lymphoma, and even though they may have a high international prognostic index, things like impaired performance status, age, high LDH, extranodal disease outside the lymph nodes, or advanced stage disease, those are things that fit into the international prognostic index, which correlates with outcome in patients with large cell lymphoma. So when you see the 82-year-old come in to your office, they often have high-risk disease because they're older, they have other comorbid illnesses. Often the big issue is cardiac disease, and they tend to get worse lymphomas. And so what do you do with that patient? And how do you present it to the patient, I think, is very challenging. This was a retired university professor, very smart person, uh, very intelligent wife, and a daughter that came with him who was also very sophisticated. So they could understand the issues and were very interested in the possibilities. On the other hand, he was a very frail 82-year-old. This was not a tennis-playing 82-year-old. This was an 82-year-old-looking 82-year-old. And I think that's the big thing. And how I approach these patients is really, A, I try to have a very frank discussion with the patient about their goals of therapy. And, you know, I think it's tough to say to a frail 82-year-old, you know, you can say we can try to cure you and we may be able to, but I think you have to also be realistic about that. I think also the issues tend to be centered around quality of life and me not wanting to overly treat this person and, you know, have them die of sepsis or something like that in the first line of treatment is also in the back of my mind. So many of these patients I'll give R-CHOP as their initial treatment. Some of these patients I'll use a regimen called RCEPP, which basically involves cyclophosphamide, etoposide, procarbazine, and prednisone if they can't take an anthracycline. Some people would use the REPOC infusional regimen, thinking that by treating the patient as an inpatient and with infusional therapy, that might be less toxic. But in some patients, and in this patient, I recommended giving him a modified R-CHOP with lower doses of cyclophosphamide and doxorubicin because I was quite worried this is somebody who had a little bit of a cardiomyopathy, an ejection fraction of about 50%. He had a creatinine of about 2. As I said, he was pretty frail. And, you know, I think even if we were giving him full-dose treatment, the chance of cure with his multiple risk factors was relatively low, although not zero. And I felt like I didn't think he could tolerate full doses of treatment, and I wanted to try to ease him into it because he did have a high LDH, a fair amount of disease. He had one lymph node that was about seven centimeters or so. And I was quite worried that he was not going to tolerate treatment at all. And so I opted to be more gentle in easing him into it. But I think it's a very complicated discussion, and you have to listen to the patient and the family and really look at their expectations very closely. What was his life situation? What did he and his family say? So he agreed with that. He's actually just getting started on treatment. And his life situation was that he lives fairly independently here in New York with his wife. He has involved children, but he's been pretty independent and active and independent in doing things, but still very frail. I mean, somebody who I had to help just to give you the picture. I mean, I had to help him get off the exam table and I was worried that he would have trouble, you know, getting himself dressed out of the gown. So this is not someone who's a robust 82-year-old and was a pretty frail person. 
Yeah, it's a really tough situation. On the other hand, with this type of disease, I guess you could imagine he's not going to go very long without getting into trouble and really dying from the disease unless you do something about it. No, I think that's it. I mean, I think there's no question that he needs therapy and actually was having some symptoms from his disease. So in some ways, he'll feel better with therapy. My hope would be that his performance status would get a little bit better. I think that there's this whole area of geriatric oncology, which is obviously not unique to lymphoma. But I think when we talk about the International Prognostic Index and looking at somebody's performance status, applying some of the tools to geriatrics care and the tools to assess somebody's functional status would be of quite value. This may be somebody who, you know, I'd like to get plugged into physical therapy to see if we can buff his performance status a little bit to some degree so that he'll have a better chance of getting through this and maybe adjusting his doses up to give him full dose therapy if he can tolerate it. You were talking earlier about your philosophy of approach to patients with follicular lymphoma. What about in diffuse large B cell? How do you approach it? And if somebody says, what's the chance of being cured, roughly, what would you say? Well, I think in large cell lymphoma, the goal is cure. And I think that we certainly, in everybody who can get cured of therapy, that's our goal. With every new patient with large cell lymphoma, I sit and I go through the International Prognostic Index. And for the audience who may do this less often, you can remember this by APPLES, A-P-L-E-S, age over 60, impaired performance status, basically reflecting what kind of shape the person is in. Older people with bad performance status tend to do less well. And then L being elevated LDH, E, extranodal disease outside the lymph nodes in more than one place, and S, stage three or four, meaning disseminate, largely disseminated disease. So when I see a new patient, I will tell them that. I'll go through their risk factors with them, and I'll say, you know, your chance of cure seems to be very good or not so good or somewhere in the middle. I tend to use this information in part to encourage people to go on clinical trials because I think we tend to think that in large cell lymphoma, everybody who's got a large cell lymphoma can be cured. Well, in fact, if you're a 70-year-old with poor performance status and you've got a high LDH, your chance of cure is probably less than 50-50. And so maybe you ought to go on a clinical trial or we ought to try something beyond the standard treatment because a 50-50 shot for some people may be just fine, but for others is not all that great. 